Today's interview contains the topic of drug addiction, violence, and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Hannah Madden from San Antonio, Texas, and I'm a physical therapist assistant. I love listening to Compelled because each time I listen, I am convicted, challenged, encouraged, and reminded of who God is. Every story shared is a testament of His glory and grace. Hope you enjoy today's episode. He was injecting, and I asked what it was. He had a syringe in his arm. He said, come here, I'll show you. And he stuck it between my two fingers. I was 10 years old. I didn't know what he was doing. I had a lot of problems in those years of being on heroin and have a juvie record from it. and Quite painful time. I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Compelled, a seasonal podcast using gripping, immersive storytelling to celebrate the powerful ways God is transforming Christians around the world. And this is our second to last episode of season five. Last week, we heard from Ramona Churko. For years, Ramona and her husband served in churches together. On the outside, it looked like they had a picture-perfect marriage, but in reality, Ramona was carrying a dark secret. Her husband was emotionally and physically abusive, and Ramona had lost all hope. Until one day, she realized that the source of true hope had never left her at all. Again, you can hear that story by tuning in to last week's episode with Ramona Churko. Today, our guest is Kane Kellerman, who became addicted to heroin as a 10-year-old boy and saw his life quickly spiral out of control after that. His life held no hope, and he simply stopped caring about anything. And even if his life did have a purpose, how could he break free from his addictions? So gather round, lean in, and join us for another compelling story from the kingdom of God. I was introduced to Kane by one of our compelled listeners earlier this year and had the opportunity to interview him while we were passing through Florida this summer. Kane is six foot four, his arms are covered in tattoos, and he has a beard that's easily six inches long. If you didn't know him well, he might be a little intimidating. Kane was born in 1975 and grew up in the south part of Minneapolis, which was an extremely rough part of town. Crime was rampant. In fact, because of its high homicide rate, the locals called it Murderapolis. Few of Kane's friends were religious, and Kane was no exception. I grew up in a atheistic family, very heavily anti-religion, anti-God, anti-establishment. And they weren't against me finding out what the, what the different religions were, but they didn't want to have anything to do with it whatsoever. And so growing up in that, I didn't have any sense of who Jesus was or what Christianity was or anything that way. I just didn't know. They equated him as along with any other, like Gandhi or, or any other religious, like a uh, big figure that way. That's all they equated him as. So it would just be stories or fantasy time. I accepted it just like Santa Claus. It's like, it's one of those things. It's just a story that people believe in. I went to church 18 times. It was 17 funerals and one wedding. At the wedding, I got high and drunk with the pastor. I smoked a joint with him, and I was taking shots out of his flax that he had in his suit. I just thought that's what Christians did. I didn't know there was a difference. I always saw Christianity as being something stupid and a crutch. Um, Sunday mornings, the bars were just as full as the churches, and usually twice as full when the church got out. 
I used to watch people walk right from the Catholic Church right to the bar. You know, there's a, bar, a biker area where I kind of grew up, and there was this biker bar that they would literally walk from Catholic Church across the street to the bar. You know, all I thought of Christianity was this just this outward show, this worthless thing that does absolutely nothing because everything is worthless. Everything, my life, your life, everything. In the end, it doesn't really matter. Growing up, nothing mattered. Like, that's why I hung on to songs like Metallica's Nothing Else Matters or other things like that because just nothing, who cares? Who cares? I started smoking cigarettes when I was eight years old. I started heroin when I was 10 years old. So uh, their dealer, I went over to get a bag for him, a weed, and he was injecting and I asked what it was. I was 10 years old, I didn't know what he was doing. He had a syringe in his arm, I didn't know what it was. He said, come here, I'll show you. And he stuck it between my two fingers. Sucked the needle in and that was three years of my life. Uh, I had a lot of problems in those years of being on heroin and have a Jewish record from it, and quite painful time. At 12 and a half, I think it was, my good friend at the time, Blake, started dating a girl. I was walking to the corner to meet him and his girlfriend, and I saw him get lit up by gunfire, and that was it. He, he had been shot? Been shot multiple times, about a block and a half where I grew up, and I saw it happen. I had to hold her away because she wanted to try to help Blake. Um, half his head was gone. I held him while I took his last breath. And that's something that still gets me. Like, what are you going to do when you're 12 years old, 11 years old, when you see somebody die like that, you know? I thought, because I was six foot in sixth grade, I could grow a beard in sixth grade. I could, I thought I was an adult. I was doing adult things. I was drugs, alcohol. So I thought, well, why not get married? try that or you know why not do other adult things why just keep going so i just wouldn't come home uh, weeks and just be gone when kane was 13 his dad was in a terrible car wreck and they went through a lot of financial turmoil to escape his family moved two hours away to alexandria minnesota which had a population of less than 10,000 people it was a stark contrast to Minneapolis, and he quickly made a reputation for himself as the new kid from the city who loved to get into trouble. I got suspended pretty quickly uh, when I started there because I come from a city school, public school, and I go to a country public school that's the class sizes are a third the size. No one knows how to fight. Their, their fights are just pushy, pushy things. And I got annoyed at that. I, I really got annoyed at they can't fight. So I started fights. I'm like, that's not how you fight. I push them and I hit them. You know, then this is how you hit, you know, and suspension, get in trouble, you know, that kind of thing. Get in trouble for the shirts I wore at school or I didn't get in trouble for those in Minneapolis, but I did in this town, you know, and which made me more and more bitter towards the area and want drugs more and more. But I couldn't find heroin there. You know, they didn't have methadone. They didn't have anything. So I went through six months of DTs of just horrible dope sickness of just being in and out of throwing up of the sweats of uh, headaches and body aches and just awful. At 13, I didn't know what was going on. Your hormones are going crazy. And now this. My parents wanted to have a better image, I think. 
So things got a lot tighter at home, um, a lot more restrictions, uh, rules and, and things, which made me more resentful too. It just progressed to get worse and worse that way. By the time I turned 18, I was still in high school. It was my senior year. I was majoring in English. I was taking four English classes every day. I was going to be an English teacher. That was my whole goal. Still using drugs and just not heroin, just everything else. I was drinking. I was doing anything I could do that way to alleviate the pain that I had inside. My friends dying or just the various issues I went through that way. I, I was just going through the motions. I was excited to get to college. I had a full scholarship to go to a college for English teach, for teaching English. It was a four-year school. Uh, full ride scholarship, too. It was all covered, everything. Um, I was getting A's. I could be high and get A's. I had no issue doing that. Uh, sometimes your reading comprehension is better if you're stoned, I guess, some, some people say, right? But, you know, I, I, I didn't have any care. I didn't care about you, 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 anybody. All I cared about was me and what I wanted. So everybody else, I didn't care. So I'm in high school. I'm getting drunk at lunch. I'm getting high at lunch. I'm doing whatever. And my parents got me a car at 18. I promptly crashed that a few months later. When I was skipping school that day, my car was full of people. I had a 60, 1960 Chevy Bel Air green four-door and I could fit seven or eight people in that because it was such a wide car I could fit more people in the trunk too but you know that was only for special occasions <laughs> but I had at least eight nine people in that car when I got in the accident it was snowing I slid into somebody and I, when I hit them and knocked the battery cables off of my car which shut down the music shut down everything shut off my car you know and the next thing I knew, I heard the doors open and all my friends were gone. They were running because <laughs> they knew the cops were going to come and they didn't want to get caught. So then I was there holding the bag again. I found myself so alone, it felt like. You know, my friend getting shot in the head, holding his girlfriend away. Uh, my dad's car accident. The, there's so many things that I felt like I was the last one. I was the one to have to deal with all the repercussions of it. And which made me more and more mad, which made me want to get more and more high because it was that cycle of, I don't want to feel this. His car was totaled and due to a whole bunch of other shenanigans, his parents eventually had had enough and kicked him out of the house. Kane didn't really care and just moved in with a friend from the party scene. I started living there, getting more and more involved in drugs, more and more involved in the kind of drug underground of that area, the party scene, that kind of thing then get kicked out of high school. I lost my scholarship. I missed too many days of school because I didn't have a place to live. I couldn't get to school. I didn't even have a car. I lost all of that. And I lost the scholarship, everything, because I couldn't complete high school. And that was the impetus for me just to go, I don't care anymore. I don't. I don't care about anything, anybody, anything. I tried to kill myself a few different times in that time. I took three bottles of sleeping pills, thinking that was going to take it, do it. I slept 14 hours and got up. That didn't work. Uh, I felt like a failure because I couldn't even kill myself. You know? Couldn't even do that right. Uh, I slipped my wrist, but I did it the wrong way. So I didn't bleed out. You know? It was all things like, oh, 
am I that stupid? I can't even do that. And then I'm always the last one. So at these parties, whenever they would get busted, I never ran just because I'm not a runner. I don't care. I just, I, I smoked. I started smoking when I was eight years old. I'm like, I'm not going to lose my breath over this. So <laughs> forget this. <laughs> so that's what I do. I just go, just wait. But all of that just made me more and more mad overall. I started getting in adult trouble, I guess. Uh, two weeks after my 18th birthday, I caught my first adult charge, uh, criminal charge. And I, that was uh, shoplifting. But I was shoplifting frozen chicken. And, and this was this is embarrassing, because when you go to jail, people ask you what, they're, what you're there for. Yeah, frozen chicken, that, that, that didn't go over very well. Uh, but, you know, I was hungry. I didn't know what to do. So I just knew there's frozen chicken that is cooked and if I thought I could eat it so I took a box of it out of this grocery store and stuck it in my shirt tried to walk out I was hungry I didn't care I didn't think I just was hungry I'll just take that I could have taken something small and got out of there and been fine but nope so in all of that and that's when I caught, caught my first charge so they wanted to make an example of me uh, for stealing frozen chicken they kept me in jail for a month a month, it was 30 days for a box of chicken, right? There was a way overkill and time limit wise. I mean, a lot of people get like a night or a couple hours or whatever, but no, I got a month and that made me so mad. But I also found connections where I could get other drugs inside jail or which then served me as I kept going to that jail for the next couple of years, uh, over and over again. So I ended up before I was 21, I had two felony charges, uh, two DARs, which are driving after revocation, three DASs, driving after suspension, a DUI, and multiple misdemeanors. I can't even remember what those are. In those two years in my, in my adult record, I was busy. And I kept getting in trouble. I was a stupid criminal. Like, again, I didn't care. Whatever, arrest me. Whatever, kill me. But with, with all of that, again, I just could care less. I could care less what, if I hurt other people's feelings or if I hurt my own or if I died. Didn't matter. So in that time, I robbed my parents. I busted into their house, fully expecting if they were there, what happens, happens. That uh, was probably the lowest part of my life. Kane was hitchhiking and going to parties constantly. And whenever he wasn't in jail, he was either drunk or high. And since he couldn't make sense of anything, he stopped trying. After all, life was a joke. But what he didn't realize was that God was watching closely and was about to intervene, which you'll hear about right after the break. As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them, it was the highlight of their summer because it was such a spiritually engaging experience. And today, Worldview Academy's mission continues. If you have a student between 13 to 18 and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture, then Worldview Academy is what you're looking for. Worldview Academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics, servant leadership, and evangelism, all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. 
your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching addressing questions like, how do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life. And with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. Learn more and get 10% off your student's camp registration as a Compelled listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at worldview.org. Register for camp today at worldview.org while spots are still available. And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. If you're a recent college graduate or getting ready to graduate but don't have a job already lined up, then what would you think about moving overseas for nine months and living in a foreign country, receiving spiritual discipleship and gaining professional skills? If that sounds too good to be true, it's not. It's actually the Global Ambassador Program from ELIC, which has connected Christians to opportunities around the world for the last 40 years, specifically through English education. You'll live with a group of other like-minded Christians your age, either in Tunisia or Thailand, and learn how to engage and serve people from an entirely different culture. Some of those ways might include teaching at a local school, hosting an after-school program, serving refugees, or by volunteering with a local ministry. And you'll get the chance to visit a couple other countries nearby, as well as make lifelong friendships and memories. And if you've never done anything like this before, then don't worry. The experienced team members at ELIC will walk with you every step of the way. If anything I just mentioned sounds intriguing to you, then sign up for an exploratory call. There's no cost, it's just a conversation. Get started at ELIC.org. Again, that's ELIC.org. Welcome back to Compelled. We've been listening to Kane Kellerman describe his out-of-control lifestyle of drug usage and constant parties. He was 19 and had stopped caring about anything. He knew that life had no meaning, so why bother? But what he didn't know is that God was about to intervene in the most unexpected way. I started renting a house with a bunch of other guys, and we just made it a party house. Uh, the ceiling fan, we'd use that to shoot other things. We'd have the ceiling fan on and just throw stuff up into the ceiling fan and see how far it'll throw. And we had things wedged into the walls from that. We, you know, it was just a party house. That's all it was. Drugs constantly, alcohol constantly. There's vomit just, just standing, just out. And because people just throw up and leave it. And just, you know, there was one whole room that was just beds. That's what it was for. It was the bedroom. And it didn't matter who else was in there. It's kind of, it just we just partied. That's all it was. And we rented it from this elderly gentleman who was the farmer originally that owned that house. He lived in a trailer house next door because he didn't need the big house anymore, so he rented it out. So we took it. None of us could have phones. At that time, it wasn't like cell phones. It was all landlines. And we all had bills because we had landlines from other places that we rented, and none of us could have a phone because of that because we never paid those bills. So we used this elderly gentleman's phone. His name was Clarence. He's in his 90s. And uh, so one day I, I was using his landline and it was like a typical kind of older person. They have a phone on a table with a drawer 
in the drawer, either had the phone book and a notebook or in a pen or something. So you could take a note. So I was on the phone. I don't remember who I was with, but I opened up that drawer because I had to write something down and I saw cash in it. And, uh, I took it, took some, he's not going to notice this. Took a little bit more every day. Use his phone, take a little bit more. Eventually I get arrested and arrested for stealing from this old man. I get a letter while I was in jail on that charge. Uh, and I was in the middle of going through the court to be convicted. There's a few different meetings in court before it's you're completed. I got a letter from him and he was saying that he wished he could try to take the charges off of me. That because of Jesus forgiving him, that he forgives me. And that he actively was trying to get a hold of the DA and all that, trying to get the charges off of me to get me out. And I remember reading that on my bunk and it, it broke my heart. This old man, I was stealing all the money from him. That was what he lived on. It was a social security and he lived. That's what he lived on for food, for bills, everything. And I stole that from him. And yet he was kind enough. Jesus shown through him enough to forgive me that way. And that's when God started to break my heart started to break through the crust that I had put up, the wall that I had put up against him. I still have that letter. It's still, it's crinkly. Cause the, the tears I was actively pouring out of my eyes at that point, I'm not a crier, but that got me. I get that letter in the same time period. There's another guy in jail, another inmate. This guy has been bugging me to go to church in jail for months. And I, this guy is annoying me beyond belief. It just kept going and going and going. Kept Every Wednesday, every Sunday, every Tuesday, he would always want me to go to Bible study or church. Like, just shut up, you know, just get out of here. I don't want to have anything to do. Finally, I went just to make him be quiet. That's the whole reason why I went. So I go. I don't remember what the Bible study is about. I don't remember anything about it. Uh, one of the volunteers went to put his hand on my shoulder, which now I know was to pray for me, but then I didn't know what it was for, so I heard him, uh, which sent me to the hole, which when you're in trouble, in jail, you go to that, where they take everything else from you, you know, so you don't have TV, you don't have books, you don't, you don't they take it from you, because you, you've lost those privileges now. This guy's got me to go to the Bible study, but now I got in trouble because I went, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, oh, it's his fault. I, I'm putting all of the blame on everybody else, not on me. Uh, it's everybody else's fault that I'm the one who's alone left behind. It's everybody else's fault, but mine. So I'm in there and that same guy that invited me to church got me this Bible and said to open it up to the book of John and read. I've always been a reader. Like I said, I was going to be an English teacher. Uh, I, so I, I didn't have anything else to read, so I decided to. And what Clarence had done a few weeks before by that letter that started breaking my wall down to the point that when I started reading John, God started breaking my heart. By the time I got to chapter 8, I don't know what verse it was, but I know it was chapter 8 because the woman caught in adultery. 
I felt like that chick. Even though I wasn't caught in adultery, I was caught in drugs all the time. I was getting caught in this, in this, in this, in this, holding my best friend's head. Like all of these bad things, all of these awful, awful, awful things. You grow this bitterness, you grow this anger that just, it gets so deep. So I could identify with this woman who was caught in adultery, but it started breaking my heart and realizing that he could forgive me. And that was earth changing, earth shattering. I didn't think anyone could forgive me. I didn't think anything could forgive me. I thought I was the worthless, most worthless waste of flesh that there had ever been. Uh, just what I thought I was. Uh, I don't know if it's because I'm Swedish and I'm naturally guilty, but just am. And I felt like everything was my fault. My friends killing themselves, my fault. Uh, Blake getting his head shot off, my fault. Um, me getting involved in heroin, my fault. Like everything I thought was always my fault, no matter what, no matter what it was, even when I was really little, uh, it all was my fault. And I really started identifying with her. And then when he, for, when he could forgive her, what? You could forgive me? And it, I remember sitting in that cell by myself and God had broke my heart so much. I am bawling, like I'm lo I, losing fluids <laughs> rapidly through my eyes. And at first I didn't know what was really going on except I started feeling I, I had closed off from everybody for so long. I didn't want to get close to anyone, even if they're good friends. No, you didn't. You never got past a certain space with me. You just couldn't because I had put up those walls that people couldn't get through. But God got through it. And then I started feeling things again and it started hurting more. And I'm like, what, what is this? Why does it hurt more? This is, I, I, every time I've heard people come to the Lord, it's felt good. Why does this hurt more? I think it's because God really wanted to get to the bottom of me and wanted to forgive me. I had to get through that. I had to get through that and then to start the life of forgiveness, right? So I'm sitting in jail the next day, next two days, uh, not knowing what's going on. I finished John, I start reading Romans, I start reading, let's just start going, you know? And I'm like, what is this? What is this? That stay in jail was transformative for Cain. If Jesus came to forgive the sins of the world, then that also included him. And if God meant to forgive his sins, then that also meant God cared about him and had a purpose for his life. Cain was ready to commit his life to Jesus and accept forgiveness but he also had very little context for Christianity and no one was there to disciple him. Case in point, one of the first things he did after being released from jail and placed into mandatory rehab was buy drugs and bring them back to rehab to sell to the other rehab participants. He was going to be a Christian drug dealer and he saw no problem with that. Cain had been through mandatory rehab countless times and it meant nothing to him. He knew all the right answers to give and how to pass the tests and had no intention of stopping his drug usage. But just a few months later, Cain crossed paths with a girl named Sherry who was passing through town for a few days. He realized that she was a Christian and was actually trying to live out what she said. And that just blew his mind. A few weeks later, Cain failed a drug test at his halfway house and was kicked out. He hadn't even turned 20 yet and was homeless yet again. 
He wasn't sure what to do next, but then he remembered that girl, Sherry. So I get kicked out of this halfway house. Now what do I do? She doesn't live in that town, this girl, this Sherry. She doesn't live there. She's in Minneapolis, which is a little over an hour away. And how am I going to get out of this town with now I have this, this Bible and I have like a couple shirts. How am I going to get out? When I was homeless before, I didn't have anything. So I didn't have to carry anything. Now I've got to carry something. Now I got to get a bag. Whatever. You know, all these things. Now I got to think about this. It was a weird time. I didn't know what to do. I was out of drugs even. I couldn't find that dealer. Uh, so somebody said, go to the family services office in this town of Hastings, Minnesota, and they'll give you a free Greyhound bus ticket to get to Minneapolis to get to the homeless shelter. Okay, so I went. They gave me the voucher. I was in line at Hardy's to get on the bus. The bus stops. The bus driver said, we don't take those vouchers anymore. And I'm like, ah. Oh. And the guy that was behind me, he had his arm in a sling because it was broken. Had this free on the inside prison Bible, his, like this, and said, I'll pay for him. So he paid for my bus ticket, but I did not see that gentleman one other time on that bus trip to Minneapolis after that. I got to Minneapolis. I got to the homeless shelter, 1010 Curry Street. And I was gonna go there, but it's right next to Washington Avenue, which is full of bars, just bars lined. And it, some of them, if, if you use your sobriety tokens you have, the ones that you go from treatment or AA or whatever, you get these sobriety tokens, like five days or a week, and then you get 30 days or whatever. Some of these bars will nail them to the wall and give you a free drink. A lot of them will. And I went to every one and none of them would. Not one, I was underage, yeah, but I had a beard. I, nobody, it, nobody carded me. I didn't have a problem for years in bars. So like them not taking it was unusual. There's tokens on the wall, but they won't take mine. This is so weird to me. Why can't I even get that? I can't, I'm trying to smell, see if I can smell weed. <laughs> I'm going around, looking around for drugs. I'm trying, like, I'm, I'm starting to shake. I'm starting to, like, I want, I need to get high. I, I'm an addict. That's all I was going towards. And I remember walking down this road, Washington Avenue, going to all these bars, getting turned out. Uh, every bar just went, nope, nope, nope. I was like, oh. And I walk by, there's this guy on the side, sitting on the sidewalk, there's loud music. I remember hearing loud music. Guy sitting on the sidewalk asking for spare change. I asked him what day it was, because I don't even know what day. He said, Tuesday. I said, what time? He said, it's like, it's after seven in the evening. And I went, oh, that's right, Sherry went to a Bible study on Tuesdays at seven o'clock in a building. And I look up, it's kitty corner from where I was. There's a red brick building, seven story, eight story, something like that. That's where she went to the Bible study. I didn't know where it was in that building, but I knew that's where she went. And she had told me about the Bible study once. I went to that building and I went floor by floor until I could find where they were. And the door was open. I look and I'm seeing the people that were there. And on a railing, I see a foot of Sherry. It was all barefoot. She had her foot up on a railing so I knew she was there. But I didn't want to interrupt them, so I didn't go in. I waited till it was the service was over because it, it were right in the middle of the teaching part of the Bible study. So I waited. <laughs> the Bible study ended. People started getting out. Somebody from behind me said, Hey, honey, where are you staying tonight? It was a gay guy. 
So I turn around because I'm going to lay him out now. I'm going to knock him out. That's my whole thing. <laughs> when Sherry stepped in front of me, she said, he's staying with us. And the roommate had grabbed my arm because I had cocked back to, and then turned me. So immediately just got me out of the situation. <laughs> just turned me out, got me out of there and, and got me out of, the, out of that room. Seriously, that, that's when I knew, I knew that week that she was to be my wife, that week. But that's when I realized Christians didn't do drugs. I was still getting high and it, she's like, why you do, don't do that? I learned that Christians just didn't do that. So I asked God, I was like, Lord, I, there's nothing I could do about this. I've been a user for 10 years. I've never stopped. I was in jail, out of jail. I was using the whole time. Just alcohol wasn't my thing. Drugs were loosening Jennings. Uh, I was like, how do you, if you truly want me to not do this, you got to take it. So he took it. Nothing else in my life has been that easy. Nothing. When I gave it to him, he took it completely and took it. I've been 25 years sober. I have had not one want, need, nothing. Alcohol, drugs, nothing. I could walk past people who are smoking up or getting high or shooting up even. It doesn't matter. There's no want, need, desire. It was like that then. When God took it, he took it completely. And he didn't do that with anything else in my life, but that he did. And I think that was just sheer grace because he knew I was going to get caught up in it again because that was my thing, you know? And so he completely took it. One year later, Kane and Sherry got married. They were 20 and 21, and Kane was still pretty rough around the edges, but they were committed to growing together in their faith and trust in the Lord. Over the next few years, they started a family, and Kane worked several jobs, all while volunteering at their church. Then, Kane began to feel that perhaps God was calling him to work in an area of ministry that Kane wanted nothing to do with, which you'll hear more about right after the break. Have you ever wondered why traditional math curriculums seem like they have a one-size-fits-all approach? Well, that's because they do. The curriculum writers are making assumptions about how quickly your child is progressing, even if your child is actually struggling with a concept, which, if left unchecked, can become a major hurdle to learning and hurt their confidence. That's one of the reasons why CTC Math exists. It's an adaptive online approach that automatically changes depending on your child's unique learning needs. By adapting to your student's pace, learning becomes not only more effective, but also more enjoyable. Can you imagine? No more tears about fractions. The interactive questions change in difficulty based on how your child is progressing, ensuring that they're challenged at the level that's right for them. Not too hard, not too easy. It's just like having a math tutor who knows exactly what they need when they need it. And as a parent, you'll love the detailed reports. You'll get to see their progress in real time and celebrate their victories and understand their challenges. Ready to give your child's math education a major boost? Just visit ctcmath.com and sign up for a free trial and experience firsthand how personalized learning can transform your child's approach to math. Again, that's ctcmath.com. If you're the parent of a high schooler or a recent high school graduate, then I'm talking to you. 
Have you ever been concerned about your students' career prospects or their financial future after high school? Or have you looked for ways to help them bolster their faith in the Lord as they pursue the next chapter in their life? Whether it's through continued education in college, jumping straight into a career, or working in the trades, Unbound trains students just like yours to thrive wherever God calls them. Unbound teaches young adults how to engage with the real world by equipping them to own their purpose, serve others, and live resiliently for the glory of God. They accomplish this through an intentional mixture of live events, practical skills training, and project-based education. And with programs available for students still in high school or post-high school, Unbound is ready to help your student prepare for what comes next. I personally know the team at Unbound, and they are excellent at what they do. And they enjoy listening to Compelled every week, which is probably why they've been one of our longest-running podcast sponsors. Learn more at beunbound.us slash compelled. Again, that's beunbound.us slash compelled. Welcome back. For 10 years, Kane and his wife had been volunteering in the churches they attended. At this point, they were in Upper Michigan, and Kane was helping with their church's youth group of 20 kids. But he began to remember the words of an older Christian woman who had given him some advice early on in his Christian walk. She said to me that I should tell my testimony or give messages at schools and prisons because of my past. I immediately said no. I fought that all the rest of those years. So from 1996 all the way till 2007, I actively fought doing jail ministry. I did not want to smell the, the disinfectants that they use in a jail anymore. I didn't want to smell the man sweat that comes out that is very particular in a jail because it is so overwhelming. No matter how much disinfecting you go through, it's going to smell like that. Uh, the soap smells a certain way. The sound of the doors when they shut. Um, the jangling of the keys. Jail keys make a different sound than car keys. So I had been invited to go into a jail to somebody else did a Bible study. I had invite, been invited to go in with them. It caused so many issues in my head. I had nightmares. It messed me up because of my past being in. I didn't want to ever hear that stuff again. I didn't want to hear it. I didn't want to see it. I don't, nothing. I actively fought against going in. I'll talk to people on the street, but I ain't going to talk to them inside there. But Kane still couldn't shake the feeling that perhaps this was the calling God had placed on his life. That his past history with violence, drugs, and crime, but most importantly, experiencing God's grace were factors that would let him minister to prisoners in a way that few other Christians could. Eventually, he relented and began volunteering with another experienced prison minister. And almost immediately, he realized this is what God wanted him to do. It was a significant time commitment, but even though money was tight around their house, God always had a way of providing. One that I love to tell because this just still still gets me is I knew I was supposed to go to the prison. It was on a Sunday. I got in my car and I went to the gas station and we had so little. I couldn't put any gas in the, in the car. I didn't have enough to get there. I was supposed to be there in two hours. It's an hour and a half to get there. How am I going to do this? I don't know, Lord. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't have anything else to sell. I've sold everything else I've got. I don't know what to do, Lord. 
I'm sitting at this gas station, not at a pump. I'm sitting at a, at a spot and I heard a knock on the glass on my window. I look over and there's a guy sitting there. I roll down the window. He puts in a gas card and just turns around and walks away. He just hands in a gas card to me. What? what? A gift card, you know? Okay. This is a stranger. A stranger. So- I've never seen him before. So I put gas in the car. It was some weird number too. It wasn't even a whole number. It that's one thing I can't stand. It's got to be 30 even, you know, if I'm going to put gas in it, you know, this was like some weird number too, but it was exactly what I needed to get to the prison and back to a T. It put me back right at the same level of gas that I had when I got back. Wow. Praise God. It was another God moment. We keep going in ministry and keep living by faith and keep just, just going and just going. Our vehicles, the houses, all of that God has taken care of over this time. So amazing what he's done. At Ojibwe Correctional, there was a man who got saved, and he was known as being a very violent guy. And if somebody had taken the Bible that he got after he got saved, got it from the chaplain, and they tore it up, he got some tape from one of the guards, and he was taping it back together again instead of hurting the person that tore it up. Mm. That's amazing. That kind of stuff is cool to see a transition like that. Guards brought a man to me. I was in the middle of a service. We were doing worship time. And in that prison, they allowed the inmates to do the worship time. The guitar was kept in the chaplain's office, but the inmate can actually play it. And an inmate could sing. And no one wants to hear me sing, too. It's two things you don't ever want me to do, sing or cook. Um, so they were doing that. And one of the guards got a, was waving from the back of the room, trying to get my attention. And... I come out of the side of the room. They're still doing the worship time. And he said, we just cut somebody down. They were trying to kill themselves. Will you talk to him? I said, yeah, totally. He still had the marker on his neck. From, I mean, they literally just cut him down from trying to hang himself. And he got saved that day. And he walked with the Lord until he got out. I don't know where he's at now, but I think it's cool how in that time, how much God changed him. I spoke at a church and a guy got up and he said he was a guard at Ojibwe. This was so cold. I didn't know. I, it was a church that we were going to. I had no idea that a guard from that prison went to that church. I had no clue. And he said that there were so many stories of me and the weird guy with big earrings. And this man said that I convicted him just going to that prison because of all the stories you heard about me walking with the Lord and teaching these other guys how to walk with the Lord, that it convicted him because he wasn't. About six years ago, Cain and his family moved to Florida, where God opened up the doors for him to share the gospel with death row inmates, which is a miracle in itself because of Cain's lengthy resume on the wrong side of law enforcement. As our interview wrapped up, Cain shared about the realities of sharing the hope of Jesus with men waiting to be executed. God has opened up so many different doors in prison, in jails. And there's a man who I got real close with on death row. I just, I saw a version of me in him, right? He was considered ultra-violent. To talk with him, you had to talk with him underneath the door because it was a full steel door. Uh, you couldn't yell through the plexi very well. So what worked best if you laid on the ground and you could talk through the gap on the, the door? You couldn't reach each other because there was, there's two catwalks on with death row because they don't want them to reach out and kill the volunteer. So they keep you past an arm's length out, right? So I'm I'm talking with this man and he's getting closer and closer to the Lord. He's 
writing letters to his mom. They're so cool. The fruit was so awesome. And there's a few guys on death row that are just amazing believers. One guy who's been on there 30 plus years. Um, he looks younger than I do. Just a just an awesome guy. And, and loves the Lord. He's encouraged me so much, that guy. But this other one I'm talking about, I'm not allowed to say names, so that's why I'm being very vague that way. Sure. Uh, he killed himself in 2020 because of COVID. Um, no volunteer was allowed in. And it was in June of 2020. And uh, that was hard to find out that he had killed himself because you'd seen so much fruit. What do you do with that? Mm. Uh, but uh, a good a good friend of mine had said to me, it's just like any other sin. His, when When that man got saved, he always used to say that, you know, his problem wasn't lying or drugs or anything like that. His, his problem was killing people. That was his sin. That's how he backslid. He just killed somebody. You know, that was his thing. It wasn't drugs or anything else. It was just killing. Mm. And so he backslid. And a pastor said it to me one time. It just blessed me. Because it that helped me under, deal with it. It helped me deal with the loss. Because I got so close with him. I got so close with him. And if there's anything out of this testimony that would bless someone, it's that. I want people to understand it's that. It's that living by faith, giving him thanks regardless, and staying the course. It's completely staying the course. God's called me to prison ministry, so I try. I always try other things because I don't like it. <laughs> to be honest, I don't like the sound. I don't like, I, you know, it's still those things that are still stuck in my head that way. But I love it. I wouldn't change it for anything because I know this is what God's called me to do. Wherever God calls us, we're going to go. We're going to be faithful to his call because that's the only thing that's worth it. It's the only thing that's worth it. Remember when I said I was worthless before? I found worth in him. And the only thing that's worth it is to bring others redemption because God brought it to me. My job is to bring it to others. So grateful that you've come and joined us for the show and can't wait to share this with others. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take a second and think about Kane's journey. He was a heroin addict at age 10. As a teenager, he was a relentless druggie, and by 19, he was in and out of jail. But God used the simple actions of a 90-year-old man who extended forgiveness to set Kane on a path of transformation. And that transformation now sees Kane ministering to hundreds of other men in the prison system with his same background. If God can use a 90-year-old man, and if God can use a hopeless drug addict, then he can certainly use you and me. Kane and Sherry just celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary and have six kids. They live near Tampa and continue to serve in their local church and their ministry called Full Throttle Freedom. To learn more about their ministry, just visit compiledpodcast.com, find the show notes for this episode, and we'll include links. One of the biggest reasons someone decides to listen to a new podcast is if they've received a personal recommendation from a friend. If you enjoy listening to Compelled, then please take a minute and share it with someone. We'd love for more folks to be able to enjoy these stories of how God is transforming lives. And if you'd like to help create more stories just like this one, then join Compelled as a monthly Patreon supporter. Get started at compelledpodcast.com and click donate. 
Finally, if you're looking for a podcast app on your cell phone, then we recommend our sponsor, CastBox. Their app is easy to use and lets you download episodes ahead of time to listen to when you're offline. And it's free. Learn more at castbox.fm. This episode was edited by Will Jackson. Our sound engineer is Zach Feller, and our associate producer is my wife, Sarah Hastings. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from next week's season finale with Barbara Mula. As a child, her home life was chaotic at best and scarred with abuse. To protect herself, Barbara put up emotional walls and developed a tough personality. But when her marriage began crumbling, she realized those walls would never hold up. If everything she thought to be true was false, how would she ever find a firm foundation? I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll be back with our final compelling story of the season next Tuesday. My husband saw me go from this confident woman to this mushy, needy, anxious, worried all the time, and he didn't know what to do with that. So he just became more work obsessed. And the more that he did that, the more anxious I got. Three times a week, I get my news from the pour over today, which in nine minutes or less, gives me the entire day's news and saves me from endless doom scrolling. They hit the highlights and then offer a Christian perspective and a relevant piece of scripture, which helps me remember to keep a Christ-focused outlook on whatever I hear in the news. And we already know that 2024 is going to be crazy with a presidential election in America and ongoing wars in Ukraine and Israel and who knows what's even going on with the global economy. In the midst of a tough, divisive year, I'm grateful to have the pour over keeping me informed of current events, but also rooted in Christ. I've been faithfully consuming the pour over three times every week for the last four years, and I think you'll find it helpful too. And the best part? It's free. Doesn't cost a penny. Start listening by searching on your podcast app for the pour over today or subscribe to their email newsletter, which has the exact same content at thepourover.org. Again, that's thepourover.org.